I would guess that some of you have had experiences similar to mine. Someone is explaining to you why they did not like the church service or why they no longer attend worship. The details may vary, but often the excuse will revolve around this theme. I did not get anything out of it. I did not get anything out of it. And that reasoning seems to frustrate many Christians because it sounds to us as if the worship service, maybe even God, is being judged or graded on the same basis as the latest Tom Cruise film or visit to Disney World. What's in it for me? If an event thrills us or amuses us or moves us emotionally, well, then we judge it well worth our time and entertainment dollar. Something inside of devout believers cringes at such a crass valuation of the things of God. A relationship with the Lord of the universe is not the same as a movie. A worship service is not to be judged like a theme park. And therefore, maybe some of you have responded like I have in times with indignation. Worship is not about what you get out of it, but what you put into it. A church is not to be measured by how it pleases you, but by how much God is pleased by you. We may even quote 2 Corinthians 5.9. We make it our aim to please Him in all things. Sometimes, churches even raise to a virtue an idea called disinterested love. It's the idea that the highest form of love does not look for any blessing to itself, but is so wholly other-oriented as to not care about itself. John Piper comments on this idea of true love and how it infected him when he was in college. He says, I had a vague, pervasive notion that if I did something good because it would make me happy, I would ruin its goodness. I figured that the goodness of my moral action was lessened by the degree I was motivated by a desire for my own pleasure. At the same time, buying ice cream in the student center just for pleasure did not bother me because the moral consequences of that action seemed so insignificant. But to be motivated by a desire for happiness or pleasure when I volunteered for Christian service or went to church, well, that seemed selfish, utilitarian, mercenary. Something, something feels wrong, does it not, about the idea of worshiping for what we get out of it. It's selfish. It's even mercenary, to use Piper's word. And yet, and yet, while we strongly must insist that the worship of the church is not to be evaluated like entertainment, I would like to put before you today that there may be something missing, something not quite complete in the answer that I have given in the past to those who did not get anything out of the service. David Brainerd pointed this out in his diary. He was a missionary to the Indians of America in the 1700s in New England. 
Listen to what he wrote in his diary. In the evening, I was unexpectedly visited by a considerable number of people with whom I was enabled to converse profitably of divine things. Took pains to describe the difference between a regular and irregular self-love. The one, regular or proper self-love, there is a proper self-love, consisting with supreme love to God. The other, irregular, improper self-love does not. The former, biblical self-love, unites God's glory and the soul's happiness so they become one common interest. The latter, disjoining and separating God's glory and man's happiness, seeking man's happiness with the neglect of God's glory. So what I've realized is that there really are three options where I might have thought there were two. Yes, we have some friends, you may know some people, who are seeking their own happiness, their own pleasure, with no thought of God and His glory. That is sin. It is the self-absorption Christ condemns when He says, you must die to self, take up your cross daily in order to follow Me. But in overreacting to that sin, we may have proposed that there is a seeking of God's glory without any thought to the soul's happiness. And that is the stoicism, which has no part in the Christian life. As is so often the case, the biblical answer is both and. Both uniting God's glory and your soul's happiness. So they become one common interest. And that is exactly where we are in Psalm 63. This is a wilderness psalm. David has been driven far from his home. Remember, circumstances are arrayed against him. His own son is trying to take the crown from his dad. He is in a literal dry and weary land driven from Jerusalem. But throughout the history of the church, we have recognized that this psalm is applicable to more than a physical wilderness. David sings this song because he sees in the wilderness, the dry land, his own spiritual life. He sees that he is spiritually dry and God records these words for us so that we will have the perfect song to sing when we feel far from God. And what I want us to notice today is that when David sings this song, it is not disinterestedly. He is not singing it for God's glory with no thought of his own soul enjoying God's presence. He has his hope set on his own soul's happiness as he seeks God. He plans to get a lot out of his relationship with the Lord. Now last week we focused on our duties during spiritual drought. First we saw that we have to recognize God's claim on our souls. He owns us. It is He for whom we were made. And if we seek our soul's happiness in any other, we are sinning and we will eventually lose out. Second, 
We are to remember God's acts of redemption. It is all that he has done in the past that reminds us and calls us back to him while we are in the spiritual desert. But then third, we are to respond properly to God's loving kindness. Remember David, because your loving kindness is better than life, these are the things I will do. It's not my feelings that will control me, but it's my faith in your grace. That was last week. This week, we're going to see that God holds out incredible promises to motivate us to do this. When you're in a dry land, when you are spiritually feeling far from God, it can be difficult to motivate yourself to pursue after Him, to seek Him early in the morning. So how does God tell us? How does God encourage us? How does God, as it were, reach out His hand and push us along the path? These verses, 5 to 8, teach us that God is glorified in satisfying the soul of His people. In satisfying your soul in a dry and thirsty land. To get there, first notice this. God's glory... And the soul's happiness are united in God satisfying your soul. That's in verses 5 and 6. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. You need to remember when you're in the desert that God's promises will not disappoint. Going hard after God will not leave you barren. Pursuing God is not like drinking salt water so that the more you drink, the drier you get. Your soul thirsts for God and your soul can be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Now in the West... We don't naturally think of a big hunk of fat as the culmination of the meal. But some of you heard Jonathan's testimony when he came back from the mission trip. Some of you even went to his house. How many of you saw the picture of the culminating meal? It was a big blob of fat. Because in their culture, that's the way you celebrate. You don't bring out chocolate mousse. You bring out a big hunk of fat. And David says... My soul, if I could translate it into American, my soul will be satisfied the same way after that Thanksgiving meal when you have feasted on turkey and sweet potato casserole and pecan pie and rolls and salad and you do that last bit of exercise that always ends the meal, right? The push away from the table. (laughs) And you say what? Oh, man, I'm... I'm stuffed. That satisfaction is what David is reminding his soul will be his. He does not feel it now, but he knows it is coming. And he knows he can count on it. God never demands that you seek him in vain. God never demands that you seek him in vain. Did not Jesus say this? Listen to his words. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. If you, when your son asks you for a piece of bread, you will not give him a rock, will you? If he asks for a fish, you will not give him a serpent? Well, if you, and you know you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not your Father in heaven give good gifts to you who ask? God never, never demands that you seek Him in vain. I love this scene in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. At the end of the book, Lucy is there with Edmund and Aslan. And Lucy asks Aslan when she will be allowed to return to Narnia. Please, Aslan, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, and oh, do, do, do make it soon. Dearest, said Aslan gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, Edmund and Lucy both together said in despairing voices, you are two old children and you must begin to come closer to your own world. It isn't Narnia, you know, said Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you back there. And how can we live not meeting you? Lewis has honed in on the primary way in which God satisfies our souls. It's not in the singing per se, but it's in the promise that the Holy Spirit fills us and the peace of Christ is poured into us while we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. It's not a corner of a piece of cracker and a sip of fine wine, but it's 1 Corinthians 10. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, by faith in me, believing my promises, you will participate, share in Christ's body and blood. It's not attending church per se, but it's that God says when you come together with people, when you sing and make melody in your hearts to God, when you gather in my name under the authority of the elders, when you do things decently and in order and you seek in your words, in your objectivity of worship to glorify Christ in all things, I'm going to come and be with you. I will sing over you. I, Hebrews says, quoting Jesus, I will worship God in your midst. It's Him. It's not the church you know. It's Him that satisfies your soul. It is He. We've already seen that in Psalm 63, verse 2. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary. Even in the Old Covenant, David looked for the presence 
of God. That's the main way he satisfies our souls. Although there are others, he pours his love into your hearts. His spirit lives in you, uniting us, body and soul, to Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 6. He assures us of his forgiveness and gives us peace of conscience. He reminds us of his kindness. He makes us alive with Christ. He enables to understand and believe his word. He sanctifies us. He gives us hope. He establishes us in every good work. And in the culmination of an Ephesians 1, Paul says, you know, he just gives us everything. Every blessing that there could be in all the heavenly realms is yours in Jesus Christ. So when your friend says, I did not get anything out of the service, Let's not dismiss that concern too quickly. Absolutely, it's true. Absolutely, there is a sense in which we are here to give our worship and ourselves to God. But we must not imagine that we serve Him as if He needed us. He does not need anything. And Christ insisted when He was here and the disciples came to Him, He said, wait a second. I did not come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. You're the needy ones. You are the ones who need my grace. Christ is glorified in satisfying your soul. And he is glorified because he alone is all sufficient for all that you need. And so we see God's glory and the soul's happiness come together as they are united in God satisfying our soul. And to press the point home even further, notice especially when David finds God's presence so satisfying. It's when he is alone at night and not able to sleep. We're not sure the exact reason why he's awake, although we can surely imagine plenty of reasons, can we not? I mean, his own son is chasing him, trying to kill him. He spends all of his days on the lamb. They're full of activity. He's got to be watchful. He, he has people coming around. If you read through the, the stories in First and Second Samuel, you find that it was a wild and crazy group of hoodlums with whom he hung out. We can easily see that it would be hard to have time for personal devotions. It would be hard to have time to meet with God. So at least one reason he's awake in the night is because that's the only time he can find for peace and quiet. Early in the morning and late at night. But in addition to that, is it not true that for many of us, nightfall marks the time when our senses are most heightened? As Calvin said to his tiger, Hobbes, You thought it was John Calvin, didn't you? (laughs) As Calvin said to his tiger Hobbes, I think nighttime is so dark so that we can imagine our fears more easily. (laughs) I know I have been tempted to find the night watches the least satisfying time for my soul and the time when I'm least inclined to seek God. I'm frustrated with God because he's not letting me sleep. But David here in Psalm 63 verse 6 says, The night time when I am sleepless is when I turn my heart to God and find him faithful. Listen to what Matthew Henry well says about that verse. When sleep departs from our eyes, whether it's through pain or sickness of body or any disturbance in the mind, our soul, by remembering God, may be at ease and repose themselves 
Perhaps an hour's pious meditation will do us more good than an hour's sleep would have. When you make it your passion to meditate on God day and night, early in the morning and when sleep evades you, you will find joy and satisfaction for your soul. Then second, I want you to notice that God's glory and the soul's happiness come together. They are united in God's being our help. Verse 7. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. Has God not has God not been a help to you? Is he not a help in all of your duties? Of course, everything that God requires of us is for our good, but he also promises to assist us in everything that he requires that we do. So are we too weak for the tasks that are set before us? His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, we just go ahead and boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. For when we are weak, then we are truly strong. Do you feel unable to do all that is required of you as a follower of Jesus Christ? I have good news for you. You are unable. Don't worry about it anymore. You don't have to worry that you're not measuring up. You're not able to. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. God is your help in every duty. Is He not also a help in every conflict? Oh, great and mighty is the enemy of your soul. The Bible tells us He is a roaring lion seeking whom He may devour. And lest you recognize Him and flee, He disguises Himself as an angel of light so you do not even know when He's sneaking up behind you in the night. What chance does Christian have against Apollyon? God is your help. He provides a shield of faith, a breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And He provides prayer by which we are fitted with every piece of armor. And Ephesians 6 says you are enabled to stand. God is your help in great conflicts, even with great enemies. God is your help in all of your duties. God is your help in all of your conflicts. Is He not also a help in every affliction? Do you fear, as so many do, being unable to bear difficulties and troubles? Paul says that he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength. This is the Apostle Paul. I was so utterly burdened beyond my strength that I just despaired of life itself. I just couldn't stand being alive anymore. Indeed, he writes, I felt that I had received the sentence of death. I looked at my life. I looked at my circumstances, what was going on, and I said, well, God has condemned me to death. And then listen to the next verse. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Now, sometimes God helps us uh, through affliction. Sometimes the pressure is on us and, 
He sustains and strengthens us and we go right through the struggle. Sometimes God helps us away from our affliction. He just diverts our path and protects us and we never even see it. Sometimes He helps us out of affliction. We're right in the middle of it. It's difficult and something He does just lifts us right out of the burden. I hope some of you have read Daniel Defoe's book, Robinson Crusoe. Daniel Defoe was a Presbyterian pastor, by the way. If you have read the book, you know he was converted, Robinson Crusoe was converted by reading Psalm 50, verse 15. That's another one of those texts that unites together the soul's happiness and God's help, God's glory in giving us help. In a sermon entitled Robinson Crusoe's Text, Charles Spurgeon said this, He paints for his congregation a picture of Robinson Crusoe's situation. Robinson Crusoe has been wrecked. He is left in the desert island all alone. His case is a very pitiable one. He goes to his bed and he is smitten with a fever. This fever lasts upon him long. And he has no one to wait upon him, not even to bring him a cup of cold water. He is ready to perish. He had been accustomed to sin and had all the vices of a sailor, but his hard case brought him to think. He opens a Bible, which he finds in his chest, and he lights upon this passage. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. And that night he prayed for the first time in his life, And ever after, there was in him a hope in God which marked the birth of the heavenly life. Now, that's Robinson Crusoe's story. And then Spurgeon beautifully applies it for his congregation. He says this, Here God and the praying man take shares. First, here is your share. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Then here's God's share. I will deliver thee. Again, you take a share. You get delivered. And then it's the Lord's turn. You will glorify me. So here is a compact, a covenant that God enters into with you who pray to him and whom he helps. He says, you shall have the deliverance, but I must have the glory. You shall pray, I will bless, and then you shall honor my holy name. Here is a delightful partnership. We obtain that which we so greatly need, and God getteth the glory which is due his name. See how the God's glory and the soul's happiness are united in God's being our help. Then third, please notice that God's glory and the soul's happiness are united in God's upholding us. That's in verse 8. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul follows close behind you. The old King James translated that, My soul followeth hard after thee. The Hebrew word there for follows hard or follows close is the same word used in Genesis 2, that famous leave and cleave passage where God explains how marriage works. You shall leave and cleave. That's the Hebrew word for follow close, followeth hard after, cleave. One version translates it cling. 
So whether you call it be joined or cleave or hold fast or followeth hard after, it does not matter. The point is this. David is saying, my commitment is to cling to God. I'm going to cling to God in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, till death do us part. Now, how can David make that commitment? We're all fickle. We are easily swayed from the narrow path. How is David able to say, I'm going to cling to you? And the answer is in the next part of the verse, your right hand upholds me. Calvin. John Calvin. To say that he would cleave to God with an unwavering purpose at all hazards might have sounded like the language of vain boasting had he not qualified the assertion by adding that he would do this insofar as he was sustained by the hand of God. Yes, it's true. Left to our own devices, we do not have a chance. We cannot persevere unless God preserve us. But that's precisely the purpose of the right hand. It's the image of power. It's the symbol of strength. And David is reminding himself that he will cling to God because God takes his right hand and holds him close to David. God says, I will keep you there. I will sustain you, even in a dry and weary lands. David's soul's happiness depends upon clinging to God. But because God's glory depends upon him being the one sustaining David, David's soul's happiness is secured. The glory of God and the happiness of your soul are united as God upholds you. Back to the topic of worship. John Piper <clears throat> writes in his book, God's Passion for His Own Glory. Nothing makes God more supreme and central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to your sinful, guilty, aching heart besides God. This conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. They are not confused about why they are in the worship service. They do not view songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as means of getting to God or of God getting to them for more of His fullness, no matter how painful that may be for sinners in the short run. Maybe some of you here today are not in a season of dryness. And for you, I say hallelujah. May the Lord continue to uphold you with His right hand for the fullness of your joy both today and forevermore. But some of you here are with David in the wilderness. Some of you here today find yourself in this dry and thirsty land. You feel far from God. If you are there this morning, I plead with you to live your life in Psalm 63. Memorize it. Recite it early in the morning and in the late watches of the night. 
know this psalm until God convinces you that He will satisfy your soul. And once the truth has worked its way, screwed itself down into your heart and gripped you, then cling to Him. Refuse to let go until He blesses you. Insist that He do what He says. And you will find that He will be glorified in upholding and helping you. You will find your soul satisfied as with rich and fat foods because at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we bless You that You have such a mighty, strong right hand. We know that left to our own selves, we are prone to wander and wander far from You. We are fearful of You and Your holiness. We are distrustful of You and Your grace. We are doubtful of You and Your desire to satisfy our souls. Forgive us, Lord. But Lord, because Your hand is not too short to save, reach down again for those today, this very morning, who feel far from You, who are in a dry and thirsty land. Reach down. Remind them of Your steadfast love, of Your faithfulness. Remind them that You are the one who satisfies. You are the one who helps. You are the one who upholds. Pull us back to You, Lord, that You might get all the glory and that we might get the joy for which we long. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.